welcome to X-Rated Movies. We're a podcast by two guys who used to date, and now we do not. Now we stay six feet away from each other and wash our hands all the time. I'm one of your hosts, Ryan Whedon. I'm the other one of your hosts, Matthew Fisher. And Matthew Fisher, this is our 150th episode. Boy, I just never thought I'd see the day. Yeah, I would not have bet on this. No, so uh, money. betting markets out there, time to cash in. Yeah. It's been quite the journey, though. I know. Quite the ups and downs. Yeah. The last two times we've hit one of these 50 episodes, we do it, it's around like Christmas time. But uh, I don't know, something happened with the timing this time, and our season was a little later this year. So Yeah, I feel like along the way, we've become sort of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern mm. a little bit. Mm-hmm. I don't know, we, we inhabit our own meta world now. Yeah. And we're just... Uh, Traveling through, rotely delivering dialogue when when not at the podcast. Do you think that's a good thing? How can it be a bad thing? Don't you think people want to know one way or the other? (laughs) Do you think people really care? Does anybody care about anything? Is anybody even listening? Hello? (laughs) That does not count as a question. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) Do you even know what a question is? Is a question different from a statement? Is a statement different from a question? Oh. <laughs> is this a philosophy podcast all of a sudden? Isn't meta-ness just diving deep into philosophy? Who am I? <laughs> all right. That, that's a losing question. <laughs> Off topic. All right. All right. All right. Yeah. No, but fi- this is our 15th double feature. Yeah, 15 of just... Just just the staggering number of 15 double features to me is nuts. Yeah. Not to mention that we have nine films in between each of those double features. I know. Plus all our lovely bonus content. Don't uh, forget about that. Yes. Beautiful, lovely, delicate <laughs> bonus content. <laughs> uh, which will soon only be available to Patreon subscribers. So I want to take this time to thank all of our lovely Patreons. Yeah. Let's, let's give them, let's shout out my name. Jessica Baxter, Chrissy Valenti, Emily Duncan. We may have more by the time this airs. If yeah. that's the case, I apologize. Recording we'll to you. is a little bit off. You know, these are trying times and all. <sighs> yeah, how are you holding up? I definitely feel like uh, uh, Tom Joad in the Grapes of Wrath. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're ready to eat some breast milk? <laughs> well, <laughs> let's put that a little lower on the step stool. <laughs> okay, okay. No, I mean, I'm still gainfully employed, of course. It's just it feels like I have a different job right now. Yeah. And I am constantly stressed, and I envy all my friends who are sucking off the government teat of unemployment. Mm. Part of me just wants to be, I'm scared to come into work, and then that'll grant me unemployment. But no, I have this misplaced sense of duty that may, you know, to, to my clients and my jobs where I feel like I should be there in this trying time and that I wouldn't be able to like look myself in the eye if I wasn't doing my small part to help my local community. Uh-huh. And that's a fucking hero. Great. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, I'm not doing anything that a hero wouldn't do. <laughs> I am still unemployed probably by the time this comes out, I have a feeling. So, um, Now's a good time to jump on that Patreon wagon if you're enjoying <laughs> this little hour, hour and a half distraction that we provide week after week for you. Uh, you know, you can put a money value on that. 
I'd appreciate it. Uh, no, it's been quite a journey, as always. Yeah. Uh, the last 50 since our last AFI double feature, of course, involved such landmarks as bad gay movie season. Mm. Like the one time that you and I have coalesced oh, right. on a theme all season. It was an intense couple weeks there. It was, you know. I don't, say that we're, I don't want to say that we'll do it again, but we're also not going to retire that yeah, theme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't put a pin in it yet, but mm, don't think, think don't not put a pin in it. Yeah, as difficult as it was, I feel like that's when we became the closest. Mm-hmm, and we really found ourselves. Yeah, that's when we found our voice. Yeah, and that we being got said, to... I couldn't do that type of movie all the time. Mm-mm, mm-mm. That was a punishment that near the end. A lot of fun. When we met some uh, very cool people during that time, Sean Abley and uh, David Kitteridge. Yeah. As well as Matthew, Matthew Montgomery. Montgomery and, and assuming the episode's been released at this point, Derek Long. We did talk to Derek Long. It's not like I have anything else to do besides edit episodes. So now I have to get it out before. Thanks a lot, Matt. <laughs> Someone's got to crack the whip here. <laughs> but yeah, that's exciting. Never in my life thought I'd talk to those people, people that worked on Socket. Yeah, I, I, a socket feels the most shocking to me just because... Oh, that's funny. <laughs> it's just it, right off the top of my head. <laughs> because that's one that, like, you know, you had me watch probably close to 10 years ago now. Yeah, more than that. Yeah, maybe even more than that. So, like, the idea that, like, this movie that, like, I enjoyed so long ago kind of came back around. And it just, like, that's a movie that just seems frozen in time to me a little bit. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Next, let's get Gina Gershon on the podcast. Oh, my God. What would you ask her? Oh, well, I'd probably, like, do some, like, softball questions at first. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What's the doggy chow scene about? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I was thinking, you know, the, you know, stuff about Bound, because that's, of course, like, the the big movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was the wig scenario like on House of Versace? Yeah. Uh, Because there was some wigs going on in that Mm -hmm. movie. But, you know, she's also, like, worked with, like, like bit parts and, like, big-name actors. Like, she's been in a Robert Altman film. She was she had a small part in The Player. She was in a, a William Friedkin movie. Uh, well, she had a big part in Killer Joe. Yeah. I want to ask her what it's like to work with him. You know, she worked with Michael Mann on in The, the Insider. Uh, so she's got, like, all these things under her belt. And I don't know. Gina. Well, let us know. We know you're not doing anything. Everyone's quarantined. <laughs> She has a fun Instagram feed. Oh, she does? Yeah. Okay. She's a total, like, photo slut, though. Like, any celebrity, like, anyone that she's working with, she's like, let's get a picture for the gram. I mean, wouldn't you? Oh, yeah, but it's like, you know, so all the people off, like, the Riverdale set, because she plays uh, Jughead's mom in Riverdale. Nice. And, yeah, she's always getting pictures with with other famous people. I'm like, you're a celebrity. You're not supposed to be wowed by these things. That being said, I'm liking all of this stuff. It's all good stuff. She's supposed to be in the new Woody Allen movie. Hashtag problematic. Hey. Because she she posted. Hashtag get it, girl. She posted a picture of herself and Woody for Instagram. Mm. And she got so much hate for it. It's hard to defend Woody Allen these days because, like, even if he didn't do it, he makes the worst case for himself. <laughs> like, he's the worst defender of himself in the world. 
Like he's got a memoir coming out, and it's like it talks about him and Sunyi and how like when they were first dating, they couldn't keep their hands off each other. And I'm like, yeah. no, gross. No one no wants to hear one that. No one wants to read this. <laughs> so yeah, it's like even even if he didn't do it, like that's gross. Like no one <laughs> wants that. How old was she when they adopted him? She was. Well, when she got adopted, she was very young, but like when they started hooking up, she was 16 or 17. Oh, Woody. Yeah, so I mean, him and Mia were never married, so it wasn't like direct adopted daughter, but like still, the parental relationship yeah, the had already been established. Yeah, really problematic. Yeah. Ew. Yeah, so, and it's like, I feel like a lot of times people think like Sunni's just like this little. Asian immigrant that didn't know any better and was taken advantage of. It's like she's a graduate of Columbia and speaks like six different languages. Yeah, like, and how old is she now? She can make her own choices. But nonetheless, at the time, she was like 17 and he was like 45. And I watched a documentary on Woody Allen a long time ago and like she like went on tour with him for his jazz band and like it kind of seemed like he really just wanted a bang maid, like a maid that he could have sex with. Because, like, she just, like, made him meals and, like, poured him coffee and, like, just kind of served at him. Like, the way that he was kind of, like, dismissive of her, I was like, this is even worse than <laughs> what I'm reading about your memoir. I mean, well, maybe it, maybe that's the dynamic that works for them. Could maybe be. That's, that's all she wants, too. Could be. Could be. I mean, they have two adopted daughters together. <sighs> Watch out with those daughters. <laughs> yeah, I'm waiting for that tell-all. <laughs> but, yeah, it's just... Woody needs to stop doing press stuff. We really got off a tangent. <laughs> I don't know how much of this is going to stay or not. Okay, well, that's good. Because I was just like, yeah, Woody just, he just, he's trying to dig up, you know. Speaking of problematic directors. Ah, there we go. There was a director way back in the day who may or may not have been problematic. Yeah, he may or may not have referred to actors as cattle. Uh, and his name may or may not be Alfred Hitchcock. It is, though. <laughs> it is. So today. We, lu- we luckily, we had a really great AFI spin last week. Yeah, we didn't veto anything. It was just like, yes, these two movies are great. Yep, we don't want to even fiddle around with other two mm. movies. Mm. I don't think we could we could have done any better. And we landed on um, Vertigo. Vertigo and The Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And uh, sounds like we're going to start off talking about Vertigo. Alfie P. Alfie no, P. <laughs> that's not That's not it. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> Alfie P. I'm calling him that anyway. I don't care. I don't know where the P came from. Uh, yeah, Hitchcock is. There's a silent P at the beginning. <laughs> it's silent and invisible. Uh-huh. I don't know if everybody knows this. He's a really good director. Yeah, so. he's he's got a couple. He's done some good movies in his time. Yeah, Vertigo. I mean, a lot of people feel like this is his best movie. BFI ranked it the best movie ever last yeah. decade. Like in 2000, they do a critics poll every 10 years and the last time this movie went from uh the number two slot to number one mm-hmm. it beat out citizen kane as the best movie of all time 
It's a haunting, weird movie. It's a very bizarre thing. It's a really strange movie. Watching it this time, I really glommed on to the strangeness. Yeah. Something like a man murdering his wife and framing someone else for it seems right in the Hitchcock wheelhouse. Right. Nothing unusual about that. But the whole movie progresses almost... Like having that part of it just be like secondary. Yeah. The murderer never gets punished. We only know that he's a murderer because like we find out in like a flashback scene. Yeah. It never comes back to him. There's never a confrontation between the murderer and, and Scotty. I think he even says like, I need to get out of town now. I'm getting out, Scotty, for good. I can't stay here. I'm going to wind up her affairs and mine. Away as far as I can. He's gone. Okay, so Hitchcock like was at the top of his game at this point in his career. So it's like it was North by Northwest, then Vertigo, then Psycho. Oh shit! Those are three heavy hitters Death. right there. I think all three of those are on the AFR. I believe they are. Yeah, and you throw in Rear Window. I'm not sure where that falls into the chronology of yeah, things. But I think those are his four that are on there. Yeah. And it's like between those three movies, at least, like that kind of covers like the broad spectrum of what we consider to be like thrillers. Sure. Like you got North by Northwest. It's like the popcorn thriller, the getting butts in seats, Action. a lot of fun yeah. thriller. You know, uh, you can even find traces of that into like the Bourne trilogy and, and stuff like okay. that. Yeah. And then like Psycho is like your exploitation thriller. It's the mother of all slasher movies. Yeah. Horror. Uh, I would put it in the horror territory. Yeah, absolutely. Like it crosses that line. Yeah, like the the horror thriller genre. Like that's like that really is like where that genre seems to pinpoint back down to. Then with like Vertigo, it's like the art house thriller, like the the expressionistic thriller. Okay. And like this is the one that I think really inspired your De Palma's, uh, uh, Paul Verhoeven's Whoa. erotic thrillers. Body double. It's like yeah, I mean body double. Direct of ripoff of this movie. Yeah. This and Rear Window. It's like um, the combo of the two. Yeah. Well, I remember when we were watching Body Double, you were talking about how like, oh, this makes sense. Like in the Rear Window vein of thinking, it's like, oh, when you're watching someone and you're coveting someone, like then the next logical step is to follow them. And like, that's like, it doesn't happen in that order in vertigo. Right. It's like he follows her and then then becomes obsessed with her. Right. And in body double, it's reversed. Like he becomes obsessed with her. So he follows her. Yeah. That makes sense. But of like the heavy hitters, this one, I don't quite love this one as much as like North by Northwest or psycho. I'm going to agree with you. I don't think it's not, super Hitchcockian in the way that you normally think of him. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's just such a weird movie. Like I was watching it this time. I'm like, I'm struggling to make sense of it. Like the plot seems like you said earlier, it seems so secondary to like the mood it's trying to set, which is so not Hitchcock, you know? Yeah. And I mean, when, when you think of Hitchcock, you think like taut thrillers and things like that. And like, this one kind of takes its time just being lush so and lavish. lazy and slack. Yeah. The the whole like first following scene goes on forever and it's wordless. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there's no tension in this. He's just following. observing her. Yeah. And we're just observing him observing her. 
what am I supposed to think during this time other than like that's a cool shot that looks beautiful yeah like what I, it's so strange like he he usually Hitchcock is so like this is what I want you to feel and this whole sequence I'm like I don't know what to feel right now yeah it, it's really ambiguous and even like the way that the movie climaxes is really ambiguous very quick climax by the way. Oh, super quick yeah I, I was a little shocked by the end of the movie but I don't know. It's just weird to have a thriller where, like, the murderer has, like, five minutes of screen time, is not apprehended, is not brought to justice. And even at the beginning, like, when they're chasing that criminal, you know, there's no real words going on. Like, we only pick up that he's, you know, a police enforcement officer of some kind because, like, when he doesn't make it to the other ledge and the, the other cop stops to come help him. Right. And so it's like, oh, this is someone on the side of this person with the badge. Right. He's he's a detective, but you know you can't tell by looking at him. He doesn't have a badge. He's, he's not in clothes, uniform. Yeah. But it's like we don't know anything about what they were chasing this guy for. There's no backstory the there. Yeah. And then yeah, it's like we get a little bit as to why the murder happened, but it never circles back to that storyline, and there's no resolution with it. And there's like, lots of plot holes with that too. I mean, is it a plot hole if, you know, Hitchcock had no intention of plugging it? I mean, yeah, I don't know. And that's another weird thing about this movie is that, like, I only, like, came to those plot holes after I finished experiencing the film and then was like, wait a minute. But, like, in the moment, I'm so just enraptured by how gorgeous and, like, weird and twisty this story is that I, like, don't even care. Because, like, okay, so the what's his name? The murderer... Eldrick or whatever I can't remember yeah but it's like his plan was to get Jeremy Stewart to follow bring him back Jeremy Stewart (laughs) Jeremy Stewart and a hot 59 I think he is in this movie (laughs) oh god really I don't know something like that but like he he gets Jimmy Stewart to follow around this his lover but makes Jimmy Stewart think it's his wife so that when she jumps off a building, like, I don't understand. Like, the, it's really convoluted, and I can't, like, put it into words. What what was his plan? Well, yeah, so it was like, Jimmy Stewart never actually saw his wife. Right. Because she died. She's the one who fell. Well, she's, but even before that, he's always following around Kim Novak, who's who, impersonating his wife. But in reality, she is the murderer's lover or was it just somebody he hired to pretend to be See, his I was, wife i was kind of hoping you'd answer that part because uh when we got to the end i was like wait was she paid for all this or did she have a connection to him because i was like maybe i just zoned out or got distracted or something like that no i i have so many questions <laughs> i feel like he hired her like she actually is that girl from salina kansas yes that's we can that's true that's true my name is judy barton i come from salina kansas i work at magnus and i live here was she just like some actress girl that he hired to play this or was she his actual lover and then and to what end i still don't understand like how is this a cover-up for the murder well, because in in Jimmy Stewart's mind, Kim Novak is the wife, right? Okay. And so the guy... Oh, so his story, when it all comes down, is like, oh, she jumped. Yeah, because... Convoluted. So it's like the actress did all these things to make her look depressive and melancholy and suicidal. Mm-hmm. And so then when he sees the body falling from the tower, he just naturally thinks that she jumped. 
Okay, and so the guy was just like standing at the top of the tower with with, with his body. wife already dead. He had broken her neck. He knew that they were going to this right. Mission. Kim Novak was supposed to lead him up to the tower, but because of the vertigo, he knew that Jimmy <laughs> Stewart would never actually make it to the top of the tower. Wow, convoluted. <laughs> I mean, okay, whatever. All that aside, you'll just have to read the original French novel in French. I guess. Who cares? I still am like, I'll sit down and watch this movie because it's like it's so like, none of that matters. The weirdly. shot, like before Kim Novak jumps into the San Francisco Bay, yeah, like under the bridge, unbelievably. Have beautiful. you ever seen a better shot of a bridge in your life? No, no, it's gorgeous, it's amazing, and yeah. it's also like screaming to be seen in a cinema. Oh, definitely. The colors in this movie. So vibrant. When he opens the door in the floral shop, you're just like, wow, that looks amazing. Just like the way that the trees look at like the Sequoia oh, National yeah. Forest. Like they look velvety almost. I love that shot in, in the uh, forest when it's like he she walks behind a tree and, sh- and he thinks she's disappeared like a ghost. Yeah. And the camera just like moves to the side and like the way the trees all move like individually. You know, like the ones that are closer move slower than the ones that are further back. Yeah, there's like the parallax thing Uh, going on. It looks awesome. Yeah. It's beautiful. Just like, I don't know if that restaurant that they keep going to is real with the like... Ernie's was real. But I I mean, did it actually have like that deep, vibrant red like wallpaper or or whatever it was? Yeah, there's just that that scene where they're like, they're at Ernie's and it kind of pans across like the crowded room. Mm Mm-hmm. And you see Kim Novak in that bright green dress, and it's like, this is why costuming is important. Costumes yeah. here by Edith Head. Edith Head. <laughs> you know, also at the top of her game, like, uh, uh, there was a period in time where Edith Head had won more Academy Awards than any other person. Good for her. Yeah. She worked real well with Alfie, Alfie P. <laughs> uh, <laughs> because she also, like, knew her place. Alfred Hitchcock for this said that, you know, he wanted the leading lady to be in gray, which I've heard there's all sorts of tension behind the, the scenes. I did. I read some of this too. <laughs> Cause like originally it was supposed to be Vera miles who was in Kim Novak's part, but she got pregnant. Oh. So she had to drop out. Kim Novak, I guess hated gray. Oh. So like the idea of being dressed in gray for so much of the movie and it is a lot of the movie. Yeah. She's like, I hate the way I fucking look in gray. Uh, she's also a natural brunette. You can tell by her ridiculous eyebrows. <laughs> so they had to have her in a blonde wig so much of the time. <laughs> oh, no. It's super apparent. Like, she's just, her eyebrows, like, clearly she's brunette. Okay, I was thinking, watching this time, I was like, eyebrow makeup has really changed. <laughs> like, that is a, a broad, sleek streak of brown that they drew on her face. Yeah, it once they see her post-death, like that's how what her hair actually looks like Mm -hmm. like she's brunette and yeah her eyebrows show it and so like all the scenes of her earlier on when she's in like the blonde wig like no who's buying this (laughs) but she i guess she knew that she wasn't hitchcock's first choice so she kind of came to set with a chip on her shoulder she's like you all need me to be here yeah well i heard also that there was like uh production had halted for so long because of script problems that Vera Miles had her baby and could act again, oh, but, but at, by that point, Hitchcock's like, no, we're sticking with Novak. <laughs> I don't care anymore. And so there's like drama there. Yeah, Edith Head, I guess, didn't want to do gray. They wanted to do, uh, 
I think it's called Odinel Green, mm. which is like the same green that you see Tippy Hedron wear in The Birds. Okay. So sort of a minty. Yeah. Sort of a soft minty green. Yeah. But Hitchcock was like, no, I want gray for this character. And so gray is what she gray. got, which I mean, gray is a fine color. Like it sounds drab. But, gray in it. Um, gray. I was going to say. But the but, colors are so important in this movie. Yeah, and so like the idea of her being in gray when the rest of the movie is so vibrant. But in that scene in Ernie's, she's in the green, in yeah. the bright green. Yeah, like the whole place is red, and everyone else seems to be wearing black. And the camera pans over. It's like you know exactly who you're supposed to be looking at. Here. Oh yeah, your eyes drawn to her. It's like an emerald green against like a ruby red. It just pops. And there's a good scene later on after she's died quote unquote when he's back at Ernie's and he thinks that he sees her walking oh, yeah and my honest reaction like the way that like my blood started flowing was like oh my god that's her like I had a moment of deja vu there yeah. like when I think that there's someone that I know that I see in a crowd yeah and I'm like is that and then like it takes a minute before they get closer like that's really like the honest reaction I had at that scene that happens to me all the time when I travel to a different city Oh, sure. I keep thinking I'm seeing someone I know when, of course, I don't know anybody. Yeah. So, yeah, same. I think that, like, in the movie, though, actually, when, when it looks like Jeremy Stowart sees her, <laughs> it actually is Kim Novak for a second. And then he, like, oh, does, I, does the, like, I think shake, it is, too. Yeah. And then it's that other one. Because it is a cut there. But yeah. the impact of the scene yeah. really hit me. Yeah. And that woman that he thinks is Kim Novak and isn't, Dines at Ernie's a lot because he sees her again <laughs> later in that same suit. Just saying. Yeah. So, I, I mean, there was a lot of things. So, like, this was Hitchcock at the height of his power. We have Edith Head at the, the height of her power. Saul uh, Bass. Saul Bass for the opening credits. Like, Green you, Spirograph you, stuff. You know how I love opening credits that fit the theme of the movie. Mm-hmm. And, like, Saul Bass was, like, one of those people that, like, pushed opening credits forward. Like, in like the 30s and 40s it was just like you know the the perfunctory credits of of like everybody's name listed all at once here yeah. we go and then like a page would turn and be another list of credits uh and then the movie starts yeah, yeah i mean that's how opening credits were sure 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 he made them exciting and like it was really him i think like his first movie he did a lot of like product graphic design like he did like the logos for quaker oats and and yeah. united airlines and like a bunch of other companies he's but, cool look him up if you don't know who saw yeah Bass saul is. bass he was doing title sequences into the the 90s like he did it for scorsese's casino and stuff like oh, that. oh cool i didn't know that uh, just on the same like hitchcock note I, when i watched north by northwest saul bass as well i know i remember seeing that opening credit sequence and being like this is awesome yeah and i looked it up because yeah, north by like, northwest especially it's that's really one of my cool. favorites it's really cool uh, but this one too, good. Really sets the mood. Yeah, and it's weird because it's like the opening credits. Like Hitchcock literally didn't even direct this scene. Yeah, like, this is all Saul Bass here, like doing this, and it's like it goes into someone's eye, and there's all this spirograph stuff. Yeah, uh, and, and yeah, Bernard Herman and Bernard Herman, another person at the top of his fucking game. Great score, great score in this in this movie. I mean, between like this is like, you know, all right, Saul Bass. And Bernard Herrmann and Alfred Hitchcock, like, they all work together on North by Northwest, Vertigo, and Psycho. Mm. And it's like all three of those scores are good, and all three of those opening title sequences are yeah. amazing. Oh, I can picture the Psycho one immediately, too. You know, oh, yeah. It. Yeah. 
Good I mean, the Psycho score is probably my favorite of the oh, three. Oh, definitely. This one's good, though, too. It's sort of him doing his best uh, Tristan and Isolde. Like, it is. It never quite resolves. Well, it's always so longing feeling. And I was also thinking that it was like, you know, Johnny Williams, of course, constantly. Like, if you listen to the Star Wars soundtrack, it's Wagner all over the fucking place. Yeah. But this one, like, you can tell that it's Wagner inspired, but it doesn't sound the way that, like, John Williams, where it's like he's just actively lifting and just kind of, you know putting a little stank on what already existed. <laughs> sure. This actually feels like Bernard Herrmann's like, oh, this, the unresolved part is what I'm going to steal. Yeah. But the rest of it's all him. Yeah. It's more original, I guess I want to say, than John Williams. Like, John Williams might be more memorable. Okay. Like the Star Wars a score. Catchier. Yeah. A little catchier. But I think Bernard Herrmann was, was more Ultimately original. more affecting. Too. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the score throughout the whole movie is so good, too. Not just yeah. the opening sequence. And it fits the movie, too, because there's so many, like... I was thinking watching it this time, part of what makes it weird is that there's lots of, like, circling back and repeating of things that happen. Like, he was almost kind of like a minimalist, almost. Like, he like yeah. He kind of bridged between minimalism and, and high romance. Right. He repeats a lot of, like, simple motifs. They keep coming back, like, elements of the movie keep coming back. Like the bouquet and the spiral in the hair and it's like the dress yeah Yeah. things like that and then we like we go to the mission twice we climb those stairs twice yeah there's just just like these repeating things almost like leitmotifs throughout the movie that we're just like returning to and they don't add up to anything necessarily but like it makes you feel like they do i don't know i don't know how to put it like it the movie's like a ghost. Like, it's a ghost story, in my mind. Yeah, and, and this almost, like... Uh, I remember the first time I watched this a long time ago, there was almost, like, a meta appreciation for it mm. because Hitchcock does a really good job. If you don't know the trajectory of the movie, you almost kind of feel like this is a possession story. Like, you buy into the idea that Kim Novak's actually possessed by like, this dead woman. Sure. Because there's that scene when he goes into the um, hotel... And he's like, I want to see that oh. woman's room. And that woman who's rubbing olive oil on her plants yeah. is like... Which, is that a thing? I don't know. I took that note, though, because I was like, that's a olive waste oil. of olive oil. Olive oil on a rubber plant. Now, when she comes down, don't say that I've been here. Oh, but she hasn't been here today. I just saw her come in five minutes ago. <laughs> no, she hasn't been here at all. Well, I would have seen her, you know. I've been right here all the time putting olive oil on my rubber plant leaves. She was cool. I liked her a lot, by the way. <laughs> okay. Um, but yeah, she's like, you want to come take a look? He saw her in that window. Yeah. But then when she goes up and opens the door and she's like, oh, no one's, no one's been in here for 10 years. <laughs> well, not quite that long. <laughs> but it's like, it, it. I don't know. And that happened again. There was another time when that happened too, where I'm like, this, is, uh, this goes unexplained. Mm-hmm. So there's like an element of... He's either going crazy or it is a ghost. Like, But that's why I feel like this is like the art house thriller. Like this is where, you know, I think this is like probably the Hitchcock film that David Lynch clings to more than others. Okay. Because, I mean, if you watch Blue Velvet and you're really critical about it, a lot of stuff gets unresolved in Blue Velvet. But it's just like you don't care. And like Roman Polanski thrillers, like there's a lot of stuff unresolved in Roman Polanski thrillers, but you just don't care and i think that's sort of the thing that hitchcock was going for with vertigo it's wild because it's like while watching it i don't care about those things yeah i feel like i always tell myself that'll that'll come back 
and never d- and then it wasn't until like finishing the movie and then thinking back on those things being like he never did take care of that string and i think that's sort of just being a modern audience watching this like i think right now our movie sensibilities kind of want these things to be answered and addressed and and tied up in some way shape or form i think that there was a time for moviegoers where that wasn't as important as just the overall experience of the movie yeah because you know like i was saying earlier about like how they never circle back to the murderer in this and it's it's it and it really is odd to have a thriller where murder goes on a murder and like sort of a setup not a frame i want to say but like you know uh uh Jimmy Stewart is it's a kind soft of, frame job. Yeah, is sort of put up as like a patsy for an alibi at the very least. Yeah, and it never goes back to like getting justice. And I think that just kind of adds to the ambiguity of the movie because you know, did Kim Novak deserve to die? I mean, she did willingly like help set up the scenario. Where I don't think we're really sure if she knew that the wife was going to be murdered though in all this. Yeah, maybe not. Um, so it wasn't until she got to the top of the... T- that, sh- that's why she screamed? That's why she screamed and okay, had, to, yeah, maybe, had her mouth yeah. covered. Also, what happened to her after all that happened? Like, did she just hang out in the clock tower? How did she get out? Yeah, she must have just waited there or something. Sorry. But there's just like... when I, In the light of day, I'm like, this movie falls apart. <laughs> but like... While I'm watching it, I hey, don't give a you shit. You got time on your hands? Read what, what is it? Le 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 Mer. Entre Le les more. Yeah. Entre les more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, maybe I will. Yeah, I'll get you back should. To you. you should. <laughs> yeah, but the, no, but that's a good point. It's like there's all these things I was thinking about after watching it that I was like, I don't understand this part. But it's like while watching it, I didn't care. None of this stuff crossed my mind. Yeah. I'm I'm too busy trying to figure out my feelings while watching it well yeah it's so weird yeah it's a the, weird the, movie there's just so much like extended periods with no dialogue right and they just look so good just like between the costumes and the score and mm-hmm. just like the lush cinematography it just all looks so good yeah the other part that kind of makes it like morally ambiguous is like jimmy stewart <laughs> kind of a piece of shit in a lot of this movie yeah He's like, I just want a blumpkin. <laughs> I know it sounds weird, but just give it a minute. Just, just, just look at it at first. Just, just soak it in. I know. I don't know what they did in Kansas, but Marianne used to do it all the time here. Just unzip it slowly now. Just, yeah, yeah, like that. <laughs> Now you're doing it. Now you're getting Jimmy hard. (laughs) Give it a minute. I gotta get my coffee to kick in. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, he's the yeah. He's kind of gross. Like, well, like when they go to buy the dress, like the gray dress. Oh yeah, I know. And he's like borderline abusive about it. Why does she go along? You're looking for the suit that she wore for me. You want me to be dressed like her? Judy, I just want you to look nice. I know the kind of a suit that would look well on you. No, I won't do it. 
Judy, it can't make that much difference to you. I just want to see what you No, look. I don't want any clothes. I don't want anything. I want to get out of here. Judy, do this for me. A, I long for the day when instead of having fitting rooms, models would just wear the clothes for you. I know. How boring would that job be where you just have to sit around <laughs> waiting for somebody who's your size yeah. to come in and be like, I want to look at some clothes. I, it, it seems mind boggling that anyone ever thought that was a good idea. Nonetheless, I want to go back to that time. Also, that store, do you remember the name of it? Right, because they probably oh, went out of business. Rothkaroffs or something. <laughs> I doubt that that model of um, having live models come and give you a personal runway show really paid off. Uh, there was a scene in the Mighty Ducks 2 where they pose as Aaron Spelling's grandchildren and do get lingerie models to model for them at some Beverly Hills. Wow. Yeah. So it's still going. Uh, as of 1991 or whenever Mighty Ducks 2 came out. Boy, I'm old. The 90s feel like yesterday. <laughs> I don't know. Let's go to Nordstrom and find out. Yeah. I'm like, sure I'd they like the live hot man model to model this tux for me, please. Yeah, I don't know if man models were ever a thing. Let's do it. Let's demand. Yeah. Let's d- this is sexism in the <laughs> purest form. I saw a movie that took place 50 plus <laughs> years ago, and they had live people walking around with clothes on. Now, I want to see... That man <laughs> in high heels and a gray dress immediately, because that's what I'm going to buy. <laughs> but only after he tries on several different ones. <laughs> but yeah, Jimmy Stewart just, he's so abusive in that scene. But there's also like, I don't think we're supposed to sympathize with him. Like, I think we're supposed to think that he's a monster a little bit. or that, Yeah. That, Something uh, happens. A flip has switched. But there's also the nice scene where he's like holding Kim Novak and he's like, he's like, I also want a cocktail dress that's like this and like this and like this. And the the lady's like, oh, you are a man who knows what he wants. But it's like when he's delivering that, he's like sort of holding Kim Novak in place and they're facing a mirror. Mm. So it's like while he's giving the lines that he wants this thing that exactly duplicates what he's seen before, we're also getting an exact duplicate because they're facing a mirror. Yeah. Uh, so like, there's definitely the the, the like that he's really hammering at home these themes of like duality and repetition. Yeah. There's also a lot of shots of the back of people's heads, specifically like Kim Novak's. I noticed it a couple times where it's like he's showing people's rather than showing people's faces, he's showing like the back of their heads. So it's like this mistaken identity theme or just that like just because something looks like something you know it is is doesn't mean it is. Mm, 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 um, also, maybe like you can't make it that way, too, because that's all he does with Kim Novak is try to make her into Madeline. Yeah, that's really all it is, is like an unhealthy fixation. And I and remember she goes along with it because she loves him. Yeah, she does love him. But, I don't know, it's sort of a gross love. I don't think they're going to make it as a couple. <laughs> I remember the first time I saw Vertigo, I was like, no one, this this isn't how people think. But then I kind of saw the theme of, like, replacement in, like, other thrillers. Like, I think the first time I saw Vertigo was the same time that I saw uh, 
Almodovar's La Piel Que Habito, The oh, Skin okay. I Live In, uh-huh, yeah. where I'm like, oh, this is sort of like Vertigo, but a lot stranger. Uh-huh. <laughs> but not dissimilar. Yeah, I mean, it still has like that theme of replacing. And of course, you know, we watch Body Double together, and right. that has the like the same theme. I mean, in Body Double, though, Melanie Griffith was sort of a uh, an innocent in that. Like, she didn't really know what she was doing. And here, Kim Novak knows... Yeah. Or at least she seems to understand what she's done. Yeah. In Body Double Melanie Griffith, like, she was just hired to, like, dance in this window at the same time every night. End of story for her. Right. Here, Kim Novak kind of knew, like, she was supposed to string Scotty along. Right. He was like, if he asks for a Blumpkin, you give it to him. <laughs> What's a Blumpkin? <laughs> You'll find out. He'll tell you. <laughs> he loves explaining it. <laughs> So she wait. So she like. So she was paid to, or yeah, she must have been paid to do this. Yeah, I'm thinking she must be paid because, like, if the killer absconded out of town, if she was a lover, she would have gone with him. Yeah, presumably. She, she must. So she must have just been some actress lady that kind of looked like his wife. Well, I don't even think looking like his wife really was important. Well, I just assume because like Jimmy Stewart. Jeremy Stewart. Jeremy Stewart saw her fall through that window, so she has to but, have I mean, a passing resemblance. A, yeah, I mean, maybe like height and build and and like uh, 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 hairstyle, which you know clearly it was a wig. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, I just I, okay. I I keep saying I need to mention this. I need to mention this. So I'm just going to mention it now. The Famous Hitchcock shot that you see all the time, the pull-out push-in. Yeah. I think it was from this movie. I'm pretty Did, sure that it was. I think this is where he invented that shot. It's what gives you that vertigo feeling. And it's beautiful oh, shot. looks great. Really I mean, gets the effect across. I mean, you see it in Jaws. It's in Jaws. That's the first yeah, thing I think of, too. That's the, the other big example of it. I think it's push-in, pull-out. Wait, push in, zoom out? Well, I, I think it depends on, on the effect that you're going for. Right, you can do the opposite. It's like you push in with the camera, but zoom out, or you pull, pull out and, and zoom, zoom in. in. Yeah. And, and, yeah, and it does this like forced perspective sort of thing. Yeah, it's cool. And like I think this was the first time anyone did it. I think Hitchcock invented it. At least shot. to the, the effect that, that he used here. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like maybe someone else had used it by accident, but like I, it had never been used so purposely yeah. before this. It's weird, like, we're praising this movie an awful lot, but, you know, like I said, like, out of Hitchcock's heavy hitters, this is a little on the lesser spectrum for me. I think because I don't know how to feel about it logically, like, because, like, the killer gets away, there's there's no restitution there, there's no justice in this movie, you know, whether or not Kim Novak deserved what she got at the end, like, ugh, that's, a, that's, a, that's as gray an area <laughs> as her suit. <laughs> it's, like, yeah, it's so poetic and expressionist i don't know i i don't expect that from hitchcock and know how to talk about it when it's hitchcock Mm -hmm. because it's like that's not what he does i haven't seen a ton of his movies because he has a billion but like i've seen enough to know that like this just is out as of his normal realm like kind of completely i can't think of another film that he's done that is this loose this like kind of laid back yeah not like purposely this looser laid back and certainly not one that just really emphasizes the visuals the way that this one does it just feels very artistic from a director who's not known for that 
Yeah, because, I mean, he's a capital D director, of course. Like, we've done Rope on the podcast yeah. earlier. But it's like he, he – I always feel like he needs a good, sturdy plot and that he brings the rest of it. Right. Whereas this one, like, it is plotty, but – It's n- not a great plot. I'm going to say that right now. Not in the way that the usual Hitchcock movies, like, really have a plot to them. Yeah, it doesn't unfold like a traditional noir even. Like, no. it's just so – bizarre it's such a bizarre movie it is it's really strange even by like even with you know 60 years between its release and now yeah. it just seems like a very strange movie and i don't know what it's about either that's the other thing is like it's there's like part of like being a voyeur there's part of like obsession mm-hmm. there's part of like a ghost story there's just so many things involved that i i don't know it doesn't have a strong, like, this is what this movie is about to me, which I find intriguing in a way. I like a movie that's a big question mark sometimes. Yeah. But that's just so not Hitchcock. Maybe that's why everybody loves it now is because they're like, oh, this was so different from everything else that he used to do. Like, I don't know. It's, it's a weird one. It is It is really strange. I love it. I love it to death. Oh, me too. Yeah. Like, I own it, and I have no intentions of never not owning it. But it's just, it's really an odd one. Like, it's a lot of question marks. It's a lot of moral ambiguity. And, yeah, it's 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 just, it feels different from his usual type of film. Yeah. How'd you like that animation dream sequence in the middle? I always forget about okay. that. It's a little cheesy, I think, a little bit when it's like just Jimmy Stewart's head <laughs> in like different colors. Like when it's leading into it, like and like the the flashing light gets more intense, and and the uh, coloration gets more extreme. There's certain parts of it, yeah, like when the animation comes in or when it's like yeah, just Jimmy Stewart's head. I'm like, ah, this is a little. But this is also like. 1959. I was like, gonna say, I feel like this is like what 2001: A Space Odyssey like looked to that movie. Is my is what I got from that small yeah. little sequence in the middle. Yeah, and I'm sure that if you were just a, a regular, if you just seen North by Northwest, you're like, let's go see the new Hitchcock movie. <laughs> Your date's gonna be upset. Yeah, I, I feel like the, it, there might be some some ruffled feathers here somewhere along the lines, but. What did you think? I mean, I liked it. Like I said, I, I like while I was watching it, I was just thinking like, I, f- I always forget there's animation in this movie. It's so bizarre to yeah. just toss that in. And I get it. It's a dream sequence. And then, yeah, also the other thing is like this, this reminds me a lot of the like third act of 2001 A Space Odyssey mm, where mm, it's just mm. like the head and like the colors and it's bizarre and it just like it comes at a weird point in the movie too. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just such a strange, such a strange thing. in this already strange movie. Yeah. Like, I don't know. By the way, I did extra credit for this movie and I watched the green fog. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, cause it's on Vimeo now. It's on Vimeo right now, which is, um, so partially directed by Guy Madden. Longtime listeners will know that we're big fans of Guy Madden on this podcast. Is it also co-directed by Evan Johnson? But what it is, it's so hard to explain. They basically made, remade this movie, but using only clips of movies that were filmed in San Francisco. Yeah. So it's sort of like recreating a Monet painting with like photocopies of other people's paintings that were also in France or something like that. 
uh, but it's a movie. <laughs> it makes sense while you're watching it. Like I watched it immediately after watching Vertigo, which is probably the best way to do it. Okay. Um, it made sense while I was watching it. It's so funny. Example. So like, you know, the final scene, Kim Novak, they're in the top of the bell tower. A nun walks in and it startles her. And so she falls to her death. No. I heard voices. In the green fog, they cut to a scene of Kathy Najimy and Sister Act walking in going, <laughs> hello. Up and down. There was also a good, like, by the point when uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart, like, recognize, is, like, calling out Kim Novak's character. is like, I know who you are. You've done all this, blah, blah, blah. They just show the scene from Invasion of the Body Snatchers where he's like, oh. <laughs> It's really funny, it, honestly, like the way and clever and it makes total sense while you're watching it. They cut out almost 100% of the dialogue from scenes. Sure. There's a bunch of scenes where it's just people going like, ah, oh, <laughs> <laughs> and huh, so funny and smart and it just completely reads as vertigo. Okay. I don't okay. know. I highly recommend it. It's only an hour. And it just kind of hits the main points of Vertigo. Sure. But uh, if you watch Vertigo, I highly recommend it. It's on Guy Madden's Vimeo channel. I do want to see that. So, yeah. Totally worth the watch. It's way funnier than you'd imagine. Okay. So So are we done with Vertigo then? I think we're done with Vertigo. Uh, Should we take a break and and return with, with our other movie? That sounds like a good plan. All right. Let's refill with wine and unfill our bladders. Okay. Have you ever noticed how vampire movies get like the auteur treatment? Why do you think that is? We're not playing questions right now. Right. No, I'm just curious. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think with vampire movies, like, you can lean into different aspects. Like, you know, there's parallels to addiction. There's parallels to lust. There's also, like, cultish aspects that's, like, they can only exist in, like, certain, you know, subsectors of society and things like that. But I just noticed, that, like, there are auteurs out there that do vampire films. Jim Jarmusch, Claire Denis. Uh, Spike Lee. Franny Forco. Franny Forco. John Landis. I don't know if you want to call him an auteur, but... There's lots. Yeah. Yeah. Good yeah. Vampires, for some reason, always get the auteur treatment where... I mean, John Landis, of course, also has American Werewolf in London, but, I mean, there's not a lot of other, like, auteur werewolf movies. Right. Um, or Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, I mean, Kenneth Branagh tried with Frankenstein, and it was terrible. <laughs> and Jim Jarmusch also tried with zombies. Jim, Jim Jarmusch, yeah. And another... it was supposedly terrible. I, ne- I didn't see that one yet. You didn't like his vampire movie. I did not I care did. for Only Lovers Left Alive. I thought it was tedious. Really? But oh. I usually feel that way about all Jim Jarmusch movies, so... Well, it's on my list. I know I've threatened it with you since, I think, season one. You know, so. it's fine. You know, T-Swilled and T-Hilled, like, we're gonna get there sooner or later, I'm sure, but, yeah, I just, I thought it was boring, and it does that thing where it's like, it's just too cool for school, which is such a turnoff for me. Oh. I'm kind of into it. Because yeah. I got all the references. Maybe I'm just too cool for you. Well, it's cool. <laughs> well, isn't that a scene, uh... 
when it's like he actually wrote like a Schubert quintet or something like that. I'm like, ah, oh. oh, give me a fucking break. <laughs> he invented rock and roll, basically. <laughs> like that stuff is such a turnoff for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You'd think he'd moved on from music at that point, like after hundreds of years of doing it. Like, dude, write a book or something. And, yeah, and fucking Back to the Future gets all this flack for inventing rock and roll. Meanwhile, it's like the pastiest of white vampires <laughs> actually invented rock and roll. Yeah, and he's not even American. He's a British bitch. Well, I've been watching Castlevania Season 3 on Netflix. How similar or dissimilar to the video game is it? Well, it's inspired by Castlevania 3, which I didn't play very much. Mm. So I can't say too much about that. Okay. Um, But uh, it's a good show. And as soon as you said vampires, it's the first thing my brain went to. It's a lot of fun. It's very sexy. It's very gory. Oh, I love it. Yeah, it's pretty fun. I recommend it. Sexier than that fresh Great British Bake Off that you've been watching? <laughs> uh, I've been watching Le Meilleur Patissier. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh-huh. That's what I mean. <laughs> yeah. I was a French major, so I can follow along. I catch words here and there. I get the, the gist of it most of the time. Well, I mean, do you really need to know what they're saying? No. Especially if you've watched enough of the Great British Baking Show, there's like terms that they use in that show that like... Like I got, like bl- you can hear when they say Genoese sponge, yeah, and blind bake. I got, <laughs> oh, okay, Dequoise, They huh? said once, and I was like, oh, I know that, only because it's a French word on the Great British Baking Show, <laughs> and I and, looked it but, up. And you thought that they were making uh, uh, macaroons, but they were actually talking about their president. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, that joke was like the tortillas I had my tacos on earlier, corny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the fact that there were meta elements in Vertigo, Matt, because that was what this whole season was about for me. Did I even actually accurately explain it now? Do you want to go back? Well, all I wanted to say is like Hitchcock didn't really work with supernatural elements ever. Right. So like if you'd watched a lot of Hitchcock movies and you entered it, it would seem strange. Right. Because they really bend over backwards to make it seem like it's a possession thing, which is really outside the norm for Hitchcock. Right. I mean, that's all I wanted to say is that, like, if you watch a lot of Hitchcock movies, like, it would add a extra level of confusion to you that this movie seemed to have supernatural elements, which, sure. which and that wasn't his style. I was also going to say that it's meta to, like, the whole time that he's, like, following her around, so we're watching a person watch somebody. Mm. I think that's a little meta. But... My whole point in bringing this up is that today, today, the other movie that we're doing today relates to this season as well. Do you know how? Uh, because this brings in elements of true crime and we did a movie that also brought in elements of true crime. Because an episode one of this season, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead we reference Hannibal Lecter. I'm very pro-oyster here. Oh, yeah. We're an oyster-friendly podcast. Oh, yeah, on the half shell. I'm just like Hannibal Lecter with fava <laughs> beans. <laughs> you make that noise anytime someone brings up just something being meta, though. Yeah, delectable. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so it's like full circle this season. Because today's movie, today's movie, I keep saying it like, it's a new day. 
Because the next movie we're going to talk about on our AFI roulette extravaganza is The Silence of the Lambs. Is there a more perfect movie out there? If you don't like Silence of the Lambs, like I question how good your taste is in movies. Get the fuck off this podcast. <laughs> Who the fuck are you? Like, it doesn't have to be your favorite movie, but if you say that you don't like it, I definitely question if we're going to... What gonna... do you like at that yeah. point? <laughs> it's just... God... No, I watched this movie about a month ago. I think I mentioned that on our Oscar special. You uh, did, yeah. And like, you know what's a good movie? Silence, Silence of the, the Lambs. Lambs. <laughs> Just, I'm not sure if we did this. I might have edited it out, but like there was a time when I, I had a thing. It was, was on the like, Oscar episodes. You did not. <laughs> it wasn't that. No, this was like ages ago. But I think one of the topics I wanted to do during opening banter was like, what's a movie you can watch anytime? And I have a feeling you mentioned this movie and like watching it. This time for this for this episode, I was like, I think this is an anytime movie for me. Yeah. Anytime someone wants to watch this movie, I'm game. Yeah. I think. It's just so good. It's so good. In our Oscar episode, I definitely talked about Jodie Foster's performance in this movie. Right. Because when I initially saw this for the first time, and I was still in high school, so I was, you know, 17, 18, right around there. I wasn't really wowed by Jodie Foster because I was like, oh, she's just a young actress playing like someone in over her head. Yeah. And she seems slightly overwhelmed by it and she's trying to stay afloat. But I was like, but that's what she was. Like, she was a young actress trying to stay afloat in like this big Hollywood movie Mm -hmm. that she has to like carry on her shoulders. But then as time went on and I watched other movies and I realized like, oh, Jodie Foster's also in Taxi Driver as like a 13-year-old prostitute. Yeah. But I mean, if you watch Taxi Driver, like it seems like she's got a good head on her shoulders, basically. Like, kind of seems like she knows the score. Like, she she doesn't play it like a victim. Mm-hmm. Like, she's definitely being taken advantage of, but she doesn't play it that way. Nominated for Academy Award for that? <sighs> Where's Darren when you need him? I know. Darren, chime in. But then, you know, I watch movies like Little House at the End of the Lane, I think is what it's called, with with Martin Sheen um, or Foxes. And you realize, like, oh, no, she's been playing, like, confident young women for, like, literally 15 years before she did this movie. So her playing a nervous, in-over-her-head, unsure-of-herself woman is outside her wheelhouse. And, I don't know, it, it's not often, like, a lot of times performances are, are very singular. Like, you see a, a performance, you're like, wow, this is so good. This is one that seeing Jodie Foster's, like, range in other movies enriched this one for me. Agreed. Going back to our Oscar episode, we mentioned a YouTube channel called Be Kind Rewind, which is great. Mm-hmm. And plug it again while we're here. She has an episode on Jodie Foster's Oscar win for this movie. Mm. And uh, she goes into depth about how like uh, she had won an Oscar only like three years earlier for something. Ac- the Accused. The Accused. Yeah. yeah. So she realized upon that win that she was like, okay, I keep getting all these like victim roles. Like the Hollywood kept handing her all these. She's like, I want to play a strong woman. Okay. And so that's when, when this came across her desk, she was like, I want to play Clarice. I have to play Clarice because she's a strong woman. And it, she is. But it's the strong in like the way that's like actually brave where she's not brave. And she knows that she has to muster the courage to face oh, these situations. She's so green. She's so green. Yeah. And it's so s- scary when she gets thrown into some a lot of this. Like the whole movie. She keeps getting put into situations that she's 
in over her head on Mm -hmm. sometimes by men uh trying to manipulate her and the killer Mm -hmm. sometimes by her own design just not like falling backward into it Mm -hmm. and yeah she handles it well well jodie foster handles it well clarice sometimes doesn't handle it great but it's like I don't know how else you would handle it. Like there's the scene where they go to what is it? West Virginia and to do the, like the autopsy. Right. And she's telling like all the police officers, she's like, okay, you know, she's cause she's essentially like pulling rank on all these people. Right. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me, gentlemen, you officers and gentlemen, listen here now. Uh, there's things we need to do for her. I know that y'all brought her this far and that her folks would thank you if they could for your, for your kindness and your sensitivity and now, please, go on now. Let us take care of her. Go on now. And, like, they just look at her, and, like, you just feel the awkwardness. It's like she's shooing some chickens away or something. <laughs> yeah. That scene comes just short of her saying, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know? like, basically. Oh, so close. Well, because the way that Jonathan Demi directs is, like, you almost have to be aware that women are treated differently. If you're a real-life dr chilton mm. and you're watching this movie i don't think you would pick up on some of the little stuff that demi puts in that makes it feel tough to be a woman yeah like just the scene when like clarice gets in an elevator and she's the smallest one right. or when she's trying to tell this room full of men to like get out of the room or that she gets checked out running jogging with her uh like co-worker uh, yeah, like, with yeah. Her, yeah with her her uh her friend or student yeah schoolmate there's a lot of little things there that I think if you were sort of a Chilton, like a kind of a sexist, oblivious piece of shit, I don't think if you watch the movie that you would pick up on that stuff. I mean, it's a one-two punch with this movie in Philadelphia. I watched Philadelphia recently, too. Mm. Also another Jonathan Demi movie, uh, which he made because there was a big uh, backlash from the Science of Lambs from the gay community being like, you're just making us all look like murderers. And he's like, okay, well, I'll make one that's sympathetic to gay people, which he did. Um, but I really feel like Philadelphia is a movie for straight people to teach them empathy. Like most gay movies like back kind, then. Yeah, and kind of this movie, too, is a way to show empathy towards women in the workplace. Because it's like the way she gets treated and the way that it's filmed, like the male gaze in this movie. Oh, When the, when yeah. the guy's looking at the camera. I think it's actually like the camera's a little lower because she's a short person. Yeah. So it's like she's looking the at the eye line's a little higher. Yeah, and they're just always looking down at like all these men, like especially that scene in the nursing home that you're talking or not nursing home, the uh, funeral parlor that you're talking about. Like all the men look at her and they're all looking at her with like different varying degrees of resentment and just like I don't know. It's yeah, because powerful. Even, even like the bureau chief or her her boss, essentially her teacher boss who's on her side seems to kind of take for granted how shitty it is to be treated this way. Yeah. Like when they get to West Virginia and, and he kind of whispers to like the local police, she's like, Sheriff, this type of sex crime has certain aspects. I just as soon discuss in private. You know what I mean? I don't want my woman coworker to faint over here. Yeah. And it's like, he apologizes later. He, he does, and he says that like he did it only as a means, like as a, like a, a tribalistic gesture yeah. to get in okay with these people. But it still feels shitty yeah. from Clarice's end. And to her credit, when he apologizes, she's like, "Matters, Mister Crawford. Cops look at you to see how to act. Matters." Point taken. It undermines her authority 
to do shit like that in front of everyone. I know. But I mean, like, I think that if you're Chilton or if you're just an average dude, I don't think these things would resonate with you as a movie watcher. Like, I don't think those things would necessarily hit home because they're done so subtly. Like, I think Hopefully they would, though. Maybe. I kind of feel like they're almost there just for, like, you know, the woke people. (laughs) Yeah, the gays and ladies in the audience. Because I feel like they're done so subtly. Like, when when Chilton is asking Clarice, like, when she first gets to the the prison... You know, we get a lot of detectives here, but I must say I can't ever remember one as attractive. Will you be in Baltimore overnight? Because this can be quite a fun town if you have the right guide. She doesn't really respond. There's just a shot, like a close-up of her face looking uncomfortable. Yeah. And I think without her, like, you know, laying the smack down on him, I think that if you were Chilton and you were watching this movie, like, like a real-life Chilton, you'd be yeah. like, oh, she's standoffish. She just needs that right D to warm her up. Yeah. I mean, it keeps it's throughout the movie, like the the scene, and it's like it's less nefarious than that later on. Like the scene when she goes and visits the bug guys, mm-hmm. like the one with the weird eyeball who play, later plays a doctor in Philadelphia. Oh, does uh, he? Yeah. Okay. Uh, he hits on her while the, the the other one's dissecting the cocoon, and it's like this would never happen if it was a man. Like yeah. they would all be just focused on the fucking bug, you know. But because she's a woman and she's pretty, like he's like, if we go out for cheeseburgers and beer. The amusing house wine. Are you hitting on me, doctor? Yes. Can we all, like, back off? But it's also, like, important, like, not just for, like, from an empathy standpoint, but, like, because she's a woman and has a different perspective on the case, that gives her special insight That's to That's why he happening. brings her on, yeah. Well, but, like... Well, partially. Well, like, even near the end when he goes to, like, uh, uh... Or she goes to the room, Clarice goes to the room of the first girl that was kidnapped, she sees the music box and she's looking around the room. That's like, where do girls hide secrets? Definitely. Because like the, the father even says like, Oh, the police have already been through here. There's nothing else here. And she's like, "Mm, where do girls hide, hide secrets in that ballerina box? Yeah. And like she, cause she opens it up and starts immediately looking for a hiding place. And there's no dialogue in any of this. Like, it's not like there's like a voice there. And I'm like, where would a girl <laughs> hide a secret? Is now she... I, being a woman, would <laughs> <Yeah>. know. <laughs> she just kind of picks up that that little music box and and yeah. she kind of checks it to see if there's something that slides out or a door. And she finally finds it. Like yeah, behind like the lining of it are these pictures. pictures. But then like also, I think that like that's what gives her the ability. Like her being a woman is what gives her the ability to talk to the friend of her because it's like. I don't necessarily think that a man questioning that woman would get the same information. Uh, the like, friend that worked at the bank. <laughs> yeah. They're talking about like girlfriend shit, you know, like boyfriends and like, you know, job shit. Like, I mean, it kind of reminded don't... me of when Francis McDormand in Fargo is talking to like the yeah, hookers exactly. a little bit. Yeah. yeah, totally. It's so important that Clarice is a woman. Like, yeah. Really. And like Demi like really drives it home. I mean, just the fucking like walk to uh, Lecter's cell, the first walk, when he's like, I can smell your cunt. Oh, yeah. Wouldn't happen with a dude. Wouldn't happen. That guy would say something completely different. Like, it's so Or would he pay attention to that person at all? Exactly. If it was a guy. Yeah, it's so demeaning. It elicits such a response from these people. 
And it's weird because I don't know about you. Does Hannibal Lecter read gay? No. No? No, I thought he was into Clarice. I think that's like the beautiful ambiguity of mm. their relationship is like I can't tell if he's attracted to her. I can't tell if he wants to like fuck her or eat her. He would need her. It's rude. He won't come after me. Oh, really? He won't. I can't explain it. He he, he would consider that rude. But there's something about their relationship where I'm like, I don't feel like he's really that sexually attracted to her. Like, he might think that she's appetizing in one way or another. Mm -hmm. But I don't, like, if he did want to have sex with her, like, I'm not saying that's not a possibility. But Hannibal Lecter doesn't necessarily read as straight, I guess. For lack Do of a better term to me. have a sexual orientation? Like, or, or are honestly. they just pansexual? Yeah, I think that they would fuck anybody if it meant getting to the ends that they needed out of somebody. Yeah. Like, I think that's what a psychopath would do. But I, I think that's what makes their relationship so interesting is like you never know the actual nature of it because it's like, yeah, he might want to fuck her, but he might not. Yeah. Like it might not be his cup of tea at all. He might want to eat her, but or he might consider it rude. I don't know. There's a lot of ambiguity there. And it just always feels like he's manipulating her. To yeah. Me. Like I never feel like she really has the upper hand. <laughs> like there's times when I think he lets her think she has the upper hand, but I don't know. There's probably one exchange when she's faking like the plea bargain, like you will be transferred sure. to this prison and one week out of the year, you will go to Plum Island where you can walk on the beach under SWAT supervision. Soffer is non-negotiable and final. Catherine Martin dies, you get nothing. The way that she like puts the case file and the offer in the tray and slams it forward, she's definitely got control in that situation. And you sure. kind of see Lecter trying to grapple it back a little bit. But there's just the power imbalance of, like, Lecter's just sort of slouched down, looking at her. She's standing up. She's the one who slams the thing shut. And she doesn't really move. Like, she's statuesque at that point. So, like, that one scene, which we find out later that it was all a lie, that she was faking it. But the power imbalance there seems clear. Like, if you're just going off of, like, body language and and blocking, that she's the one with the power in that situation. To talk about another YouTube channel that we like and talk about, there's an every frame of painting about, like... Oh, the first conversation. The first conversation that they have in the way that Demi... Because, by the way, after watching Philadelphia, I'm like, Jonathan Demi's thing is, like, (laughs) close-ups. And, like, straight on close-ups. Like, he does it all over Philadelphia. Okay. Almost to an annoying point, I'm going to say. Okay. But uh, they're effective in this movie because, I don't know, like, there's sometimes when he's, like, in that every frame of painting, they talk about how, like, sometimes it's off to the side, and that time you're just a viewer, but then sometimes it's, like, straight on. And I don't understand entirely the the math about it, but... um, there is like a language, a film language to that, where it's like when they're looking at each other and the camera's straight on, they're equal. But then when it comes to the side, like the power has shifted. Why do you think he removes their skins, Agent Starling? Throw me with your acumen. It excites him. Most serial killers keep some sort of trophies from their victims. I didn't. No. No, you ate yours. 
You send that through now. As tense as this movie is, it is a lot of just people talking. Like it's also very opposite of Vertigo in that it's not colorful at all. No, it's very gray and drab. Costumes here by Colleen Atwood. Colleen Atwood. <laughs> also, Howard Shore did the score. <laughs> Howard Shore did the score. Um, this is very similar to Vertigo in that way, where we have a good costume designer and, and a, a good, good composer. composer. Yeah. Uh, but the costume, Colleen Atwood. I think the costumes here are very important because oh. one. When we first see Hannibal Lecter, Demi had requested that he be dressed like a dentist because people don't like dentists. Like there's a fear with dentists and that evokes pain and drills and vulnerability and things like that. that. Okay. So yeah, he he was dressed to resemble a dentist, but it's like, you can't just dress him as a dentist. He's a prisoner. But just the way that Clarice looks like she can't look. She has to look professional, but she also has to look kind of low on the totem pole. Well, Lecter comments on her clothes. Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a rube. A well-scrubbed, hustling rube with a little taste. After that scene, when she gets the come in her eye and she's, like, leaving, and she looks What like, a fucking scene. Oh, it's like, so good. How you- horrible would it be to have some horrible strangers come thrown in your face. I know, in your eye. Yeah. It's a good scene because, like, it's the fava beans, gets cum in her eye, and then he calls her back while everybody's screaming. Like, it's very tense. But then after that, she's crying outside, and then as she's walking to her car, she cries again, and it shows, like, her POV of walking to the car. And they never picked up on this until this time, but, like, she has a shitty car. And he he just called her out about being poor. Yeah. And it's like, oh, fuck. That's got to hurt, you know, to walk back and like you're trying to be this one thing and then you walk back and all you can see is like your crummy yeah, rusted car. Beater. Yeah, and it's like he's right. That's fucked. Like, yeah. He really got in her head. Yeah, I mean, the way that Lecter gets in, in Clarice's head, you know, it's effective, but I think the most effective scene is when he goes to see the, the senator. <laughs> yeah. Like, it really just feels like a stab into the soul during that scene because, A, I, and I'm I'm putting this to Colleen Atwood, he looks terrible. Like, that, the face mask, the straight jacket, like, <sighs> and Anthony Hopkins can only act with his eyes, really, mm. at this point. Like, mm-hmm. boy, talk about a master class in acting. Like, how do you be this scary where the only thing you can move is like your eyebrows and eyelids. Mm -hmm. And it starts out like he purposely like lets everyone's guard down. He's like, I'm not going to squabble over petty rights when there's a life, you know, at risk at this. And like, you think like, Oh, he's on our side. Like, you know, despite all, all these harnesses and, and and safeguards, like he, he, he understands the gravity of the moment, but then he, Injexo is like, did you nurse her? Did you breastfeed? I did. Toughened your nipples, didn't it? Oh, son of a bitch. Amputate a man's leg and he can still feel it tickling. Tell me, Mom, when your little girl is on the slab, where will it tickle you? God, for me, that just hits so, like, it pierces through any armor I have and gets so intimate, you know? Yeah. And then, I love when he goes, Oh, and Senator, just one more thing love your suit that's what makes you think he's gay <laughs> yeah maybe it's such a good like 
What does that even mean? <laughs> After you're just like did all the nipple shit and then you're just like, wait, are you complimenting me or is that like a backhanded? <laughs> what is he even talking about? Like, Love your suit. Just gets into your head. He's so good at it. Anthony Hopkins, like all he really had to work with was his eyes. Like he had from the nose up to work with. He doesn't do a lot as an actor in this movie as far as like He's only in the movie for like 18 minutes or something that I read. Oh yeah, he's not in it a lot. I was noticing that. Like it's a two hour plus movie and he's in it for like 18 or 23 minutes or something. And he won best actor. Wow. Best actor, not supporting? Actor. This was uh, one of only three movies to win best picture, best screenplay, best director, and then the top acting uh, awards. Only one of three. The other two being... It happened one night. And... One flew over the cuckoo's nest. I'll insert those later. (laughs) Um, Uh, And rightfully fucking so. I mean, a movie as tight as this, because I can't think of a better paced movie. You know know what my favorite, like, cut in the movie is? I'm sure Hmm. you can guess it, but it's like... I think the line is like... uh, He's looking for his next victim or something like that. Oh, American girl. American girl. Our little Billy must already be searching for that next special lady. After all, it was a great big world. She's banging on that steering wheel every time. I love that cut. It is so sudden and it's like, bam. I mean, I can't listen to American Girl without thinking of this scene. Me neither. And we get this true crime, you know, shit going on. Buffalo Bill pulls a Ted Bundy. He's having trouble moving this couch into his van. And some girl, just being a good, decent human being, is punished for it. I know. What of her groceries? It's always my question. She sets them my down. My question is, what of her cat? Oh, her cat. Oh, no. That cat was meowing out the windowsill. It was already hungry. Very sad. Well, it's a senator's daughter's cat, so I'm sure it got Secret Service protection. <laughs> it's probably fine. Okay, so big question. How do you feel about the representation of homosexuals in this movie? Well, I mean, it's not good. They do at one point say that, you know, him being a transsexual has no correlation to him being a serial killer. Transsexuals are usually passive. Sure. But even if he's not truly trans, that does mean that he's gay, and that doesn't bode well for us. Not great. But this might be speaking from my place of privilege. This movie is so good that I don't care about the problematic representation. All right. I'm going to agree with you. I feel like this is sort of like a cruising situation where it's like, we just didn't have enough representation <laughs> at the time for people to feel that like, oh, it's okay to have a movie where somebody's gay and a serial killer. But like... As Dan Savage says all the time, Jeffrey Dahmer ate his friend. Like, they, there are gay people who are monsters. I mean, John Wayne Gacy much. Like... Oh, yeah. There's like... Sometimes we're bad. But you know what? That's because society makes us feel bad about ourselves. <laughs> And so we kill people. Not that I've killed anybody. Please don't go looking underneath my place. (laughs) He's moved several times, so you'll have no chance on tracing him. Exactly. My name is Matt Fisher. Uh, (laughs) But there's also a part of me that's like, okay, so historically, maybe at the time, yes, it would have been shocking and upsetting to see this movie because like, I think the crying game came out a year before this. Like, and these are good movies. Do you ever do that song during karaoke? 
Yes. Do you? Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I just, it's such a terrible song. <gasps> How dare you? <laughs> I just thought you'd be above it. That's all. Mm. Well, okay. Well, speaking of songs, we've got the Goodbye famous- Goodbye Horses? Yeah, we've got the famous <laughs> vagina dancing scene. Which- <sighs> Hugh Lazarus, also in Philadelphia- Oh really? Yeah. Wow! Performing live at a at the gay party at the, in that oh, movie. Oh, yeah. okay. I mean, he used a lot of repeats in Philadelphia. Just gonna say, like, I was shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Jonathan Demme was a big rock and roll fan. He directed that like four and a half hour Tom Petty documentary. Yeah. Um, Stop making sense. Stop making sense. Per- perfect movie. Even if you don't like the Talking Heads, there's no part of Stop Making Sense that isn't amazing. Yeah. Like, just as performance art, that is a beautiful document. It's a brilliant movie. Yeah. So, like, Jonathan Demme, like, he knows music, like, and he knows how to, like, put it in his movies. And fucking Goodbye Horses. Like, they use <laughs> it in one of my favorite modern horror movies, Maniac, right before someone gets killed. Oh, okay. So, it's a good callback to Silence of the Lambs. Honestly... Ted Levine, when he's wearing the the scalped head hit of someone it. else, you're gonna hit it, <laughs> aren't you? That's not what I was gonna say. Oh. <laughs> but it's very telling that you said that. Uh, but now that you mentioned it, yes, I would hit it. I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> I mean, him with the long hair looked pretty good, and he's got a good body in this. When he takes off the scalp wig, though, mm, not That's so much. It's not so great. Yeah, it's not so great. Okay. What a fucking scene. I mean... Like, him putting on the makeup and, like, saying, like... Who do you fuck with? He has such a masculine baritone. Yeah. And so, like, the idea that, like, he's putting on, like, this woman dress and trying to, like, transgress into a different gender and things like that, it's, like, the incongruity of, like how masculine he sounds with how feminine he's trying to become, I think is also like one of those things that like, like as an audience, like if you're not familiar with these concepts of like transsexuality, that it's even more strange. It must've been really shocking for people who haven't seen like say a gay porn like fuck me is not something somebody with a deep voice says unless they're gay Mm, and so mm -hmm. if you're like used to just heteronormative life to hear somebody with a deep voice like that say fuck me it must be very unsettling yeah Yeah. i'd fuck me yeah yeah it's like i mean even now the whole scene is so strange but then like yeah he talks and like lifts up his like scarf wear and even now like you know i know some queens that was a weird scene mm-hmm. yeah it's good though it's so good but yeah there's something about ted levine's just his deep like very masculine voice i remember i mean of course so many of his quotes are great it rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again i always remember oh wait was she a great big fat person? I laughed really hard when the the girl like gets the the poodle down in the the the, the hole with her. <laughs> She's hurt real bad. She's she needs a vet. <laughs> when Buffalo Billy yells out, <laughs> "You don't know what pain is." <laughs> you don't know what pain is. I laughed so 
hard. I, I don't know why I thought it was funny, but <laughs> it just it really made me laugh. Don't you hurt my fucking dog. Don't you hurt my fucking dog. <laughs> you don't know what pain is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I feel like Ted Levine doesn't get the, the, the justice for this role. Like, he arguably had the riskiest role oh, in this movie. Arguably. No, he that's... I mean, that's the kind of thing that agents would say, don't, don't take do this, this job. <laughs> At that time, be like, whatever you do, you don't want to be the gay transsexual serial killer. Yeah, you like, have to play the gay <laughs> transsexual serial killer who talks on screen? Yeah. Oh, Don't this take doesn't... this role. And then, like, yeah, it wins five Academy Awards, but you ain't one of them. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, where's his supporting actor? Oh, they gave it to Jack Palance. That year. For City Slickers? Yeah. Oh, God. I know. That, that was a career Oscar if there ever was one. Yeah. To answer your question whether or not I thought it was problematic, even though I already answered it, it's not that I don't see a problem. Like, I, I, if someone says, like, this is problematic, I can look at it and be like, oh, yes, I can see how this would be problematic. Yeah. But the movie itself is so good that I don't think that someone would walk away from this movie thinking that gay people were necessarily evil. Well, and it's not even about gay Because Hannibal Lecter is also very evil. And presumably he's straight. Yeah. Well, and the movie's about procedure. It's about feminism. When you asked my, the big question, you should have uh, followed up by saying, thrill me with your acumen. <laughs> <laughs> to go back to the pacing, I mentioned earlier how I think this is a perfectly paced film. The I'd fuck me scene is actually pretty late in the movie. Oh, very late, yeah. Hannibal Lecter's already escaped mm-hmm. by the time we get to that scene. And, like, the Hannibal Lecter escape scene, like, everything leading up to it and, like, up to, like, basically when he, he pulls the face mask off in the ambulance, that's how they get from, like, act two to act three in this movie. And that is, like, perfectly paced thriller catnip for mm-hmm, me mm-hmm. everything about it is so good and there's still like 40 minutes left in the movie when hannibal lecter escapes i mean after hannibal lecter escapes we get the crazy fun lesson in editing which <sighs> i love it i'm glad time. that you put it that way i'm so glad that you put it that way it's because it's because you mentioned it that way on our handmaiden episode also this season oh i just feel like we've got like callbacks all the way but like I love that every time it's like it looks like they're going into Buffalo Bill's house and the way it's edited, it's 100 percent like the doorbell rings, everything. Yeah. And then it's like they break that door down and it's not. We're going in. Good afternoon. Um, sorry to bother you. I'm looking for Mrs. Lippman's family. All I needed was like one different title card and it would like ruin the illusion. Yeah. I think a lesser director wouldn't have directed it to be edited that way. Well, like, because it's not, th- it wouldn't be thrilling if we knew. Yeah. Like if we thought the SWAT team was outside Buffalo Bill's house, like uh, that is what we makes do it think thrilling. That. Yeah. If we didn't think that as an audience, like. <sighs> It would rob the scene of that little extra 
something special. Well, it adds because te- it adds tension to the SWAT team side. It adds tension to the Buffalo Bill side because it's not recognize we don't know that it's not the SWAT team until he opened the door mm-hmm. and we see Clarice there and that's when it's like oh it's a completely different type of tension yeah we've been misplacing our tension this whole time like fuck it's, it's so good it's so good and then then we just have this wonderful wonderfully tense scene of like Clarice trying to get Buffalo Bill in this house like mm. And the way that she deduces it is purely cinematic. Like, if you look at the dialogue, she's like, she has to come in, she has to see, like, the card of somebody. But it's like, when we're seeing things from her point of view, like, she sees all the sewing material, and then she sees the moth land on that sewing material. It's like, and then she has, then, like, she she undoes the button on her gun holster. It's like she's pieced it all together. She realizes where she's at and, and who she's dealing with all at once. Ugh. So fucking good. I mean, from like the middle of act two, like from when Hannibal Lecter handcuffs the one cop forward, the movie is perfectly paced. It doesn't exhaust you the way that like a James Cameron film might exhaust you. It goes along at a strong, steady tense pace that sucks you in and keeps you engrossed and you're just there for every little scene of it Mm. yeah and it's it's almost like the movie wasn't this kind of thriller until now you know what i mean like you don't get any indication that the that there's going to be like police standoffs or like Mm. things like that in the movie for the first half, like all the tensions built through dialogue sure. and like interpersonal things. And mm-hmm. like suddenly at the end, it's like, well, no, now the stakes have raised to the point of like people that we love and know in this movie can die. And it, it sort of builds up to the weirdness too. Like if you look at just the first act of the movie, it's like, yeah, we get Migs like throwing the cum and like we get some like weird dialogue stuff. But like, we don't see necessarily a lot of weird stuff. Yeah. But like by the end of act two with like, we have like the one cop with his guts ripped out, like pinned to the top of the cell with like the American flag banner, like strewn across. It's like, Oh, this movie's getting weird all at once. Yeah. Chris Isaac suddenly in the movie. Yeah. For some reason. Why does he get a billing by the way? I don't know. Chris Isaac also got a billing in uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk with me, and he had about the same amount of screen time and lines. Wow, he must have had an incredible agent in the early '90s because. Well, like, I mean, he was really hot in the late '80s. Like he, that's when all his hits came out, and. Well, right. I mean, like he wicked, was a good-looking guy. Wicked, yeah, I'd, I'd hit that. I, he looks like Paul Rudd's little brother or something. Oh yeah, no, he he does. It's yeah, like, a, uh, yeah, but like. I know, yeah. He's, he's in the mo- barely in the movie, and he's in the opening credits. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm just always confused credits. by that. I'm like, he doesn't show up for an hour and a half, and he has like 12 lines. And anyone could have played that part. Yeah. He's not an important SWAT team member. Uh, I did want to bring this back to uh, our You Don't Know Jack episode, because there's the uh, recurring theme in You Don't Know Jack of like the piano motif. Okay. It was uh, box inventions that we're listening to. Right. And right after Hannibal Lecter handcuffs 
like the the one cop and like eats the face off the other. It's to Glenn Gould's uh, version of the Goldberg variations. Oh. Now, classical music fans out there might know Glenn Gould was a revolutionary in classical music performers, and I think it actually plays in to both You Don't Know Jack and Hannibal Lecter because what he did that was so revolutionary is that he stripped away a lot of the Baroque flourishes that was were very common at the time or the repetitions. He sort of just looked at the material at its core and played that at twice the speed, essentially, was mm. his, his go-to. So to me, it, the idea that both Jack and Hannibal Lecter are listening to Glenn Gould it's because they appreciate someone who strips away the unnecessary parts of something great and just does the core importance of it. And, you know, in, in, uh, in the Jack episode, in our Jack off, we, you know, there's this emphasis on destruction being beauty and art and I think that Hannibal Lecter would also appreciate that as well. And so I, I found it telling that both of them listen to Glenn Gould versions of Bach pieces, as opposed to more true-to-the-score versions of Bach pieces. They both chose to listen to someone who deconstructed the score. Well, Clarice has a dad, and in stories we tell... <laughs> Uh, Sarah Polly had a dad. You don't have to compete, Ryan. <laughs> or Lars Frontier was just referencing Hannibal Lecter. That's Could what I just think. be that Actually, simple. That's what I think it is. TBH. But uh, I don't want to ruin your jack off. <laughs> <laughs> I have to mention this because I said I think it was the Bad Moon episode that I would always mention this whenever I heard it. The opening of this movie has that stupid hawk screech that's so cliche and it does it like four times i kept counting does it really yeah it's just like over and over and over again it opens with that sound and i was just like oh god <laughs> here we go maybe at the time that was like a hip new sound effect but like whoo they really overuse it uh don't you mean instead of who <laughs> you mean hawk <laughs> So you're going to go home and watch Hannibal, the sequel? With Julianne Moore? Yeah. And Gary Oldman? No, I'm not going to. Uh, good, because it's awful. <laughs> if you watch Silence of the Lambs and then watch Hannibal, which is what I did a couple years ago, it just shows you how great Silence of the Lambs is and how horrible Hannibal is. Mm. Of course, I, I have nothing but unending love for Julianne Moore. Like, I mean, I think I, 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 that's why I feel safe critiquing a, a lesser safe role. I got it. Boy, I'm just coming up with all these good puns. God, today. your jokes today are very You're like just on point. I'm not even trying. It feels like I don't know. Sounds lambs. I, I don't want to ever say that a movie's perfect. Like I don't think the opening credits are perfect. I think Vertigo has better opening credits than 100%, this. 100 PC. Um, Alpha PC. What, yeah, 100P. <laughs> um, but the rest of the movie, even poor depictions of 
non cisgendered people. Mm -hmm. Even that being problematic, I can, you know, because I'm privileged, I can look past it. It's a pretty perfect movie. Yeah, it really. I, I'm also of the opinion that I'd rather be portrayed badly than not at all. Like, I, same, I, me too. Me and me and Harvey Firestein are on the same page on that one. Yeah, I'm with it. I am glad that Demi did go to make a, a, a overtly sympathetic gay movie. Right, like, and and like I said, I don't think Philadelphia is a movie for gay people. I think it's a movie for straight people to feel better about gay people. While watching it, I'm like, oh, the main character isn't Tom Hanks. The main character is Denzel Washington. Sure, sure, sure. And like, he's the audience proxy in that movie. So it's like the story that they're telling is not, what's it like to live with AIDS? The story in that is like, what's it like to be a straight person having to deal with somebody who has AIDS? Yeah. Unfortunately, there's straight people in this world that need convincing. Yeah. Like, we need movies like that. That's true. I'm glad he's on that tip. Like, thanks. Johnny Dem and JD JD uh, and like I mean and I, again I think that like the Science of Lambs a big thrust of that movie is sympathy towards women like yeah which feels like it should go without saying but it's like no women go through the world differently than men yeah. and it's like he shows that in this movie just I, like the way that they get on an elevator it's a different experience well, for men than it is for women just on this note I have I have to say this real fast like there's that scene when uh, Hannibal Lecter's like, do you think he wants, he thinks about you fucking, fucking oh, you? Like, yeah. you know, like he gets in her head about that. The next time we see them together, they're on that tiny plane, like shoulder to shoulder flying mm-hmm. to West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like this time while watching it, I was just thinking like, that has to be running through her head. Sure. Like it was never in her mind until he planted that seed. And now she's like, fuck, does this guy want to fuck me? And like, he's sitting right next to me, like basically breathing down my neck. Yeah. Like in the way it's filmed, they're so close and tight together. It's just like, that's purposeful. Such a good movie though. Like definitely a top 10 movie for me. Oh, wow. Well, yeah. I mean, I like it. Like I said, watching it this time, I'm like, I think this is an anytime movie for me. Anytime. If anybody is looking for a movie to watch and Signs of Lambs comes up as an option, I'm like a hundred percent. Anytime. I'll watch this movie. It's, it's just, you know what's a good movie? Science, Science of the Lambs. Lambs. <laughs> anyway, have we, have we exhausted our thoughts? I guess so, a little bit, yeah. What about you? Yeah, I feel like we've covered a lot. I mean, we can always come back to Science of the Lambs. Because those lambs never stop screaming. <laughs> yeah. I don't think those lambs were silent for Clarice after that. I think now she's got to find some more lambs to silence. In the gay world, there, there's that problem where it's like gay people kind of overachieve because mm-hmm. they're like deficient. Like they view themselves as deficient in in one way or another. So they overachieve in other areas of life she's kind of got that going on that it's like she had these early childhood failures so she has to overachieve in other areas yeah maybe and uh i think that's sort of it like she won't rest until like hannibal lecter is brought to justice but like that dr lecter dr lecter dr lecter dr lecter dr lecter dr lecter i'm sorry like one of the, another line that stands out in this movie to me is Dr. Dr. Lecter. <laughs> now let's do Dr. Lecter and a Jimmy Stewart. 
Dr. Lecter. <laughs> Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter. Dr. Lecter. I have a sprain from the blumpkin I got. Now tell me, Dr. Lecter, have you ever treated a blumpkin sprain? Oh, you're not that kind of doctor, eh? Well, you don't have to tell Jimmy Stewart twice. (laughs) Matt. Ryan. I think this concludes our third AFI roulette. It does, yes. Yes, 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 yes. But that does not mean that we are done talking about movies forever. (laughs) No, I hope not. Because there's going to be... People just started paying for this. Like, we can't stop now. We have to do an... Episode 151, don't we? We do have to do an episode 151. Well, I think that it's your turn to pick what that movie's going to be. It's come down to two things. And I just don't know what I'm going to (gasps) choose. Is this a pass the buck situation? It is sort of a pass the buck situation. Um, Let's call this game either or. (laughs) Sure. And then put, put one in one hand, one in the other. Yep, that's what I'm doing. Oh, okay. I love this game. So, uh, I have one choice in my left hand. And I have one choice in my right hand. And I really can't decide which one I'm going to do. So, I'm going to let you elbow bump my fist because it's quarantine time. Right. Um, I don't think you've seen either movie. Okay. Okay. And I think you'll like both movies. I think my heart and my gut are telling me to go with the right one. So that's my left hand. (laughs) (laughs) My right, your left. Yeah. Uh, so that's the phantom thread hand. Oh, damn it. Okay. Why damn it? I don't really like Paul Thomas Anderson. We haven't done him yet. So We haven't done him yet. Also, you're wrong. Every time I say I don't like Paul Thomas Anderson, everyone says check out phantom thread. So I had checked out on Paul Thomas Anderson for a long time. Like I recently rewatched The Master, I want to add. Yeah, and you said you liked it. I l- fucking loved it when I rewatched it. Sure. But when I saw The Master in theaters, I kind of checked out on him. And, like, after Inherent Vines, I was, like, still checked out. Yeah. And so Phantom Thread came and went. And then when I finally got around to watch, I was, like, fuck. This is the one that I should have seen in theaters. Okay. Mm. So, so, 151. I'll watch it. 151's Fan- Phantom Thread. Let's plug our junket the fuck out of here. Go to our Patreon. Yeah. Th- like, now is the time to do it because, A, I need the money because of quarantine shit. But also because... After this episode, all our bonus content and anything earlier than 50 episodes ago is going in the vault. So anything... So quote Disney. So episodes 99 and earlier are going into the vault. Yeah. The paywall. Yeah. Okay. You're going to have to be a subscriber to listen to those things. Okay. I don't want that to sound like a threat, but there's some really good stuff in those in Hey, some of my episode. favorite episodes, uh, Stranger by the Lake continues to be one of my favorite episodes. I mean, and that's like what? Episode... 49 or something yeah classic locked away in the vault it's like lady in the tramp also if you can't afford to give us money on patreon another free way to support the podcast is to leave us reviews at apple Podcasts or wherever you listen like that really helps a lot 
we've given you two options. You can just write Jimmy Stewart Blumpkin or Gloopy Gloop in the Gloopenheim. That's all you have to write. And then five stars, and you're done. There, we gave you something to write. Jimmy Stewart Blumpkins. I really can only say Jimmy Stewart's name in Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. It, his name is really conducive to, to his voice saying his own name. Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. I've gotten Blumpkins in Carl's house and Vivian's house and... <laughs> And Elliot, you remember giving me a Blumpkin, right? <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at XRatedMovies. Follow us on Facebook at RatedXMovies. Send us an email, x.rated.movies at gmail.com. Those are always to support and contact us. And if you have a better Jimmy Stewart impression than either of us, which I don't know if that exists, please send us. We'll play it on air. Yeah, absolutely. We'll call it, you up by name. Anyone who has Jimmy Stewart dirty talking on on record, we will. That's going to be our new opening. Yeah. Uh, until next week, <laughs> where we talk about the Phantom Threat. Keep reaching for that rainbow. <laughs> <laughs>